We're going to continue in Ephesians. We're picking up after a brief hiatus as Josh finished up the book of Mark. So we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. And this, this text is one that is somewhat challenging for us to hear because I think the words of instruction and wisdom that Paul is giving us here fly in the face of the wisdom that we receive on the daily from everywhere else, particularly as it pertains to the unity and the well-being of the church. I, I have not lived very long, uh, but the last year and a half, I think, have been just anecdotally the most divided scene of church life that I have experienced. And even over the last couple of weeks, as I talked with pastors in other places, Many of them reported so many members of their churches leaving because of disagreements about response to COVID, George Floyd, the election, and just about anything else. And they also reported just as many people coming to their church because they liked the way they responded to those things with no question of doctrine or gospel fidelity and commitment. And, and I wonder if that's because as a church, perhaps particularly in our time and place, we've started to think about unity and what unites us in a way that is totally foreign to the writing of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 and 5 as we continue over the next several weeks. So I want to um, suggest that if we are trying to be a church restart, we need to think about this. How is it that a group of people our people are going to go forward as we relocate in unity, and how is it that we expect to maintain unity in the days ahead? Well, I would suggest that the way we will do that is by attending to Paul's words here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, because the division that we face is not something new to us. The expression is new, perhaps, but as we considered in Ephesians 1 through 3, the church was facing a large amount of division. So if you remember, the Jews and the Gentiles are being united together in Christ. Paul declared in chapter 2 that Christ has torn down the wall of hostility. He's taken from the two groups and made one new man. So the language Paul is giving us is of the new creation. So it's like a mirror image of when God created Adam, the first Adam. Well, now in Christ, a second man is created who will be God's person, God's people united as one. Then Paul went on to say that the church is one body, the body of Christ. And so there is a unity that exists by virtue of the work of Christ. And if we are going to enter into that unity, a unity to which we already belong, we need to attend to, to these instructions. So let me read there. If you haven't turned to Ephesians, we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. In, in this text, 
Paul is exhorting the Ephesian church to live out their calling as this new humanity with virtues that will enable true unity grounded in the redemptive acts of the triune God. So as we go through this text, if, you, if you're helped with an outline following, that we're first going to consider the church's calling in verse 1 where Paul says, I exhort you to live worthy of your calling. And then we'll consider the virtues that enable them to live in a worthy manner. And then finally, we'll consider the redemptive acts of the triune God in verses 4 through 6. But Paul begins in verse 1 saying, Therefore I, a prisoner in the Lord. So he's framing all of this with his own particular situation as a prisoner in the Lord. So if you remember in chapter 3, he told them, I'm a prisoner on your behalf. But he said, I don't want you to be discouraged in 3.13 because of my afflictions. And, and I think Paul frames it in this way because as these believers are grappling with their own internal disunity, they're recognizing that their apostolic representative is in jail. And so what does that say about the power of Christ to unite them if his own representative is in prison? Well, Paul has already told them, I don't want you to be discouraged. Don't be concerned. And he's going to shift their direction of focus to think of their own conduct, the way that they will conduct themselves in this life. Because Paul, over and over again, and we'll see it again in chapter 6, is assuring them that Christ is not weak when his church and his people look weak. They, they can be imprisoned, they can be persecuted, but the, the God who is all-wise works through the wisdom that, that confounds the wise of this world. So he begins by situating himself, reminding them that he too is suffering and trusting the Lord, so they, as they pursue their calling, can trust the Lord as well. So he says, I urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received. Now we, in a, a few weeks ago, talked about the Lord's Supper, and in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul rebuked individuals for not partaking in a worthy manner, and I tried to emphasize that none of us are worthy of approaching the table, and none of us are worthy of Christ in our salvation. So when we hear a phrase like this, when Paul says, live worthy of the calling which you have received, we might start to get the wrong idea that we're unworthy of our salvation, we receive that by grace, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, but our ongoing lives as Christians are something that we measure up to and we're either worthy or unworthy of it. And, and so really our salvation is by grace, but our sanctification and ongoing life in Christ is by ourselves. It's, it's up to us. Well, that, of course, I think we would all know is wrong and incorrect, but I think it's helpful for us to reflect on why for a moment. When Paul tells them to live worthy of the calling that you have received. He's connecting this to their calling to Christ in salvation, a calling that entails a manner of life that follows it. But, but this word worthy is probably not um, the, the way we hear it in our modern vernacular. Usually when we talk about worthiness, we're talking about self-worth or you know the, something that's owed to us or something like that. And I think it might be better just to hear this is to live in a fitting way or in a way appropriate to your calling. So it's not as if we, we've received a calling and now we have to prove ourselves worthy of it. But in Christ, we have been made worthy. And so now we live in a way that is fitting with that calling. So perhaps a silly illustration will work. Um, the, the, all of the superhero movies 
there, there are individuals who get bit by spiders or, you know, shocked with lightning or something else. And they've done nothing to be worthy of this high calling now. Um, but just about every superhero goes through this phase where they fail to live in a manner fitting with the new abilities that they have. They, they start to be either super depressed and on their own or they, they use their powers in an you know, inappropriate way. Um, so in my favorite film, Megamind, you, you have the uh, Metro Man who goes off to his old schoolhouse cave and he doesn't do anything to protect the citizens of Metro City or Metrocity. And, and we look at that guy and say he is not living in a way fitting with his abilities. And, and I think that is a silly but maybe helpful way of illustrating our own calling. We, we receive our calling not because of anything about us, and really there's nothing inherent in us that makes us worthy to maintain that calling. But once we have that calling, and once we're made a new creature, we now have a responsibility to live in a manner that's appropriate or fitting with the calling we've received. So C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says something like, if we were not our own, so if we did not make ourselves, if we don't belong to ourselves, it's not surprising that we have a whole bunch of responsibilities that we otherwise wouldn't have. And that's what Paul is saying here. God has made you through Christ and by the Spirit the new humanity. And because you were made by someone else and because you belong to someone else, you now have a plethora of responsibilities that you otherwise wouldn't have. And so this exhortation to live in a manner worthy of our calling is not one that is demanding and heavy, but one that instead accords to our new nature as creations in Christ who were created in him for good works. Now, this is true of our general calling to salvation, and that's what I've been talking about all along. But I think more immediate to the text is a calling to unity as the one humanity, the one body of Christ. So Paul outlined in chapters 1 through 3 that the Jew and Gentile are brought together as one new man. And we can assume that there were some measures of disagreements in this assembly between Jews and Gentiles. And beyond that, just the disagreements that are normal for people who are together in one assembly. But over and over and over again, Paul has emphasized that you are now one body in Christ. You are the body of Christ together. And as we'll see later on, he, he just says very succinctly and very tersely, there is one body, one church, the body of Christ. And so this calling is ultimately a calling to unity in Christ and with the rest of Christ's people, his body and bride. So as we consider our calling, I, I think that there are a few ideas we need to have in mind as we read the rest of the text, because Paul is very specific about the nature of our new identity as Christ's people. Throughout, he has made the point that your salvation, I think we could say, is not just a matter of personal reality, but a corporate reality. So, so if we're going to hear the rest of what Paul has to say, then we need to adjust our thinking a little bit to press against the nation that your notion that your calling to salvation is a calling to live a life with just you and Jesus with essential indifference to other believers or in isolation from them. Our calling is a calling to the community of faith, the bride and body of Christ. And we can't conceive of our salvation apart from our connection to the rest of Christ's people. 
So we need to dispense with that idea of this neatly itemized and individualized Christianity that's just about me and Jesus and recognize that the instructions Paul gives are instructions that can only be met out and followed in the context of the community of Christ, the church. The second notion that we need to press against. So the first notion we need to press against is that my salvation is about me and Jesus and nobody else matters. The second that we need to press against is the notion that the community of faith that we're called to is to the local church alone. Now, I I think most of you have been around our church long enough to know that we make a big deal about the local church and church membership and identification with a local church. But when Paul declares that there is one body, and when he talks about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, he's not saying to the Ephesian church, you alone are the body of Christ and no one else matters. There, there are only true Christians in as much as they identify with your church or with your you know, convictions on every particular er- area. And as we expand into the modern day, I think we could say that very often local churches are tempted to think of themselves in isolation from the other local churches in their area and particular denominations of churches are tempted to think of themselves in isolation from all other denominations of churches, claiming that we alone are the body of Christ. We are the one body. Well, we need to press hard against that notion, and, and we do so whether we believe it or not sometimes, even as we read the, the creed this morning, when we confess that we believe in the holy, the, the church bought by Christ, being purified by him, the Catholic, the universal church, We believe in this, and it extends beyond us. So as we hear the instructions in Ephesians, I think that they have immediate application to our local assembly. But I think we need to start to apply it to the way that we relate to other Christians across our South Metro region and across the globe and across denominations. As we hit the the foundation for our unity in verses 5 and 6 with the one spirit, the one Lord, the one God and Father of all, we start to get the baseline of unity that exists in the triune acts of redemption. So we need to work hard to see ourselves and situate ourselves within the church at large. Third, the third false notion we need to press against is that our call to unity here can only be displayed if every person in the local assembly views every aspect of life and doctrine in the exact same way. So, so this is what I was referring to a little bit earlier as I've talked about stories of people leaving churches over a bunch of non-doctrinal issues. If, if we start to think that unity in our church will look like a uniformity where we all just happen to look or think or talk the same way, we're starting to miss the unity that Paul is talking about in Ephesians. It, just imagine Jew and Gentile coming together. Imagine this ancient city of Ephesus where individuals are being converted out of paganism and a plethora of uh, religions and practices. And I don't think that we would find a church where everyone looked the same and talked the same and had opinions on all the same things. So if we're going to hear these commands rightly, and if we're going to obey them, we cannot create a culture in our church that excludes everyone who's not like us. Because these commands can be obeyed in a way when there is no pressure because everyone looks like us and talks like us and thinks like us. These commands require the work of the Spirit in our lives and careful, close obedience when we're in a community of faith that that is not all the same. 
and, and we don't have an agenda at our church to try to meet certain statistics of what diversity should look like in our church. But as individuals come to this church with different experiences and backgrounds and ideas, we need to work hard to say that unity does not mean the excision of people who are different than us, but the inclusion of those who subscribe to the gospel. So having these things in mind, we can press forward then in, in, in verses 2 and 3, consider the virtues that Paul prescribes that enable the unity that's already been accomplished in Christ. So he says, so live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I, I don't think that the virtues listed here are the only virtues that we need to exercise in our church. We read more in the New Testament and we should pursue these things as fruits of the spirits and as part of our calling. So I think these virtues are included because without these things, unity cannot exist. So, so where there is not humility, there, there will not be unity. Pride kills humility, doesn't it? It, it makes life all about me and about my self-advancement. And so we need humility. This is fitting for Christian unity. It's a deferential treatment of others, regardless of their personality, social or economic status, or any external identifier. There is a humble, self-deferential approach that we ought to have with one another. There's no place for self-seeking or boasting or pride in the church. Paul pairs humility with gentleness. Paul describes Christ himself as meek and gentle in 2 Corinthians and other places and lists this as a fruit of the Spirit. And, and this idea of gentleness is that quality of not being overly impressed with, with one's self-importance. So it's, it's maybe not taking yourself too seriously. Um, ancient individuals would write about this virtue of gentleness and talk about it in terms of being angry at the right thing at, in the right way to the right extent and not angry at the wrong thing. I think this virtue of gentleness is one that, that we need especially. Not becoming angry at the wrong thing, only becoming angry at the right things and to the right extent. When we consider humility and gentleness, who do we look to? We look to Jesus who, who said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he cites himself as being humble and gentle. And, and I think that as a church, as the body and bride of Christ, these are two key virtues that we must pursue in imitation of our Lord. One guy wrote about this that, that I thought was quite helpful. He writes that gentleness connotes the exercise of self-control, exhibiting a conscious choice of gentleness as opposed to the use of power for the purpose of retaliation. He goes on to say, only the person who is controlled by the Spirit of God can be truly gentle, angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. We, we need to pray that God instills in each of us a spirit of gentleness. He adds to this patience, the third virtue, and I think because we need patience for a sustained exercise of humility and gentleness. The exercise of humility and gentleness cannot be one-off displays in, in one interaction, but an orientation in a pattern of life that we adopt. So we must relate to one another in patience that understands the reality of life and community together. 
We're, we're in it for the long haul, and we need to patiently endure with one another. So naturally flowing from this patience is the call to forbearance, to bear with one another. Bearing with one another is putting up with one another. It, it's just saying, I might be annoyed, I might be frustrated, but I'm going to put up with you, and I'm not going to run out on this commitment that I've made to you simply because, because you've bothered me on this issue or because you look at this or that thing differently or because you have a particular fault that rubs me the wrong way or to bear with one another, but not in the way that stomps away from somebody in a huffy manner or holds something against them or to forbear with one another in love. That, that is the unique feature of Christian forbearance. It's an imitation of God as he's described in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, where God has loved us so we love one another. We, we forbear with one another. We give up of our own wants and desires and preferences, not with arms crossed in self-defensiveness, but arms outstretched in love as we bear with one another. These things are not easy to do, so it's not surprising that Paul quickly says, making every effort. These things take work. We understand that there are work of the Spirit in our lives. In other places, we read of these things as a list of the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul calls us, as those who have been enlivened by the Spirit, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a word of hope there, isn't there? To, to keep the unity of the Spirit, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity that the church has is not one that is contrived by ourselves or manipulated into existence, but it's a, one that is a gift of the Spirit to the church. As we look at the church in our nation and perhaps across the world, we, we might be tempted to think that the church has no unity. But, but that's the wrong starting place. It's not that we must come up with this unity ourselves. We understand and believe that Christ has already offered us this unity through the Spirit. And so we pursue it. We make every effort to maintain it in the Spirit through the bond of peace as we seek to relate to one another in gentleness and humility and love. So Paul calls us to unity. He gives us these virtues that help to enable unity. And then with no transition, he starts to list a bunch of one things, almost punctuating this call to unity and demonstrating that the unity that we're keeping or maintaining is not found in ourselves, but is provided through the redemptive acts of our triune God. So verse 4, he just very tersely says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your, at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So Paul presses forward here with what is sometimes thought of as a creedal statement. It sounds very similar to the creed that we read this morning, just reversed. There we started with God the Father and ended with the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul starts with the Spirit here and ends with the Father. But these, these identity markers, the one body, one spirit, the one hope at your calling, are the things that Paul has been talking about all through chapter 1 and 2 and 3. He has already declared that you've been made the one body of Christ and that you have been brought together by his spirit who gives you life and you have a one shared hope at your calling. 
Paul is trying to unite them once again around that one shared hope of the glorious reign of Christ that is true already and will be true in the final day, his return. So the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, our Lord Jesus Christ, our one faith, I think the content of the faith that Paul has delivered to the churches in the one baptism, the, the one way of identifying with our Christ is through Baptism, this is our new identity. It shapes and forms us, and it draws us together by the Spirit through Christ to the one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And and it's hard to know. I'm not sure that I quite understand what Paul means by the one God who is above all and through all and in all, but I think we can at least say this. I think that as he describes our God is the one who is above all. He is the sovereign God who is orchestrating all things. He has authority over all of us. And so as we relate together as a local assembly internally and with other believers who are part of the family of God, our Father, we say that he is our authority. We are not our authority. He is above all. He is through all. Perhaps he is working through all of his people to accomplish his purposes in the world. He is an active agent in all of us. So as we relate to one another, we relate to each other as those who are being worked through by God our Father. And he is in all. He he enlivens us. He gives us life and hope and peace. He is at work in our own hearts. Whatever the mystery might be that Paul is giving us in this description of the Father, he's calling us, based on the redemptive acts as the triune God, to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as is fitting for the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. So how should we respond to these things? I I think probably, perhaps, All of these things are obvious to us, but I think it bears meditation and repeating. I think first, each of us should regularly pray that the Spirit would manifest himself in our lives and in this assembly, and so that we can operate in a way that is fitting with our calling to unity in Jesus Christ. The triune God has been working to redeem a people for his name from the beginning of time, and it's not over here. And so we can press forward in full hope that the Spirit will work in transforming us as we grow in unity and transforming the church at large. But I think we ought to pray for this work in our lives and not assume that it comes naturally to us. We know that it doesn't. Second, as we press forward as a church, I think that we need to work hard to catch on to other, um, other ideas of unity that are offered for us. As, as we consider our relocation and as we hope and pray that God will grow the numbers of this assembly, there are many ideas about what a church should unify around that are far from the message that Paul is giving us in Ephesians and far from the message of the New Testament. And I think there are ways to grow a church where you call people to unify over particular things that have nothing to do with God and the gospel. And while I think none of us would want to do that, we, we just live in, in the air that we breathe and we don't recognize it sometimes. And so we need to con- consider what we're calling each other to unite over. And and as we share the message of our church, as you tell others about Christ in our assembly, think about the way that you present this church. 
What, when someone asks you, what's great about your church? What do you like about your church? Or perhaps what do you dislike about your church? Start to pick up on the things that you're actually uniting over or dividing over. And, and let's turn to the New Testament to consider what we actually should be all about as an assembly. Third, I think we need to exercise great caution and discernment as we listen to calls to unity by our larger world and, and understand that unity can be present, but it can be a unity that is not a true unity, uh, not only around the right things, but also not garnered in the right way. Is our church faces division as we look at the church at large and perhaps as our assembly grows and we start to see dividing points among our own church, we, we need to recognize that the way to maintain unity needs to be in terms of what Paul gives us in Ephesians. We don't need other gurus or guides to give us the path forward. There's, of course, common grace and wisdom other places, but if the, if the strategy for unity does not include the humility and gentleness in the virtues that Paul gives us here, I don't think that it's the kind of strategy that we should follow. Certainly, there are questions about when we should divide over things and come to Bible classes. That's when we talk about these things and, and what, in terms of doctrine and practice, we think is of utmost importance. But ultimately, as we press forward together, we try to live worthy or fitting to our calling, ultimately resting in the unity provided through the redemptive acts of our triune God.